Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, a podcast engineered by Fractal Recording and produced by me, your host, Laura Shin, a Forbes contributor covering blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Thanks for tuning in. First on today's agenda is that I'm conducting a survey. I want to learn more about you, the listeners, and get your feedback on the show. Go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained to fill out the survey or find the link in the show description of this episode. Again, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained. I would so appreciate hearing from you so I can improve the podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying Unchained, please share it with others on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or with any friends or colleagues who might be interested. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to Unchained on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That also helps get word out about the show. I'd like to extend a big thank you to our sponsor, OnRamp. Branding isn't just a logo. Your brand is the essence of who you are and what you offer your customers. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that provides its clients with concise and exceptionally designed branding, websites, and marketing materials that will resonate with your audience, affect its purchase decisions, and ultimately grow your business. You can learn more at thinkonramp.com. Today, we'll be discussing something that's been on the minds of everyone in Bitcoin over the last few years, and that is how to scale Bitcoin. In the last two weeks, this has become a much more urgent question. Will Bitcoin split into two versions? And if so, which coin will become the dominant one? Heads up that this is a longer intro than normal, but some background is necessary so we can dive into the meat of the discussion. For the last two years, the community has been in a debate over how to increase the capacity of the network, which currently caps the data in each block of transactions to one megabyte. That works out to about a handful of transactions per second. Blocks have become increasingly full, sometimes delaying transactions or making them more expensive than they have been in the past. The Bitcoin Core developers, who've been managing the protocol for the last several years, want to keep the limit at one megabyte, but make the network more efficient. They propose a technology upgrade called SegWit, which stands for Segregated Witness, that would reorganize information in blocks, effectively enabling a greater number of transactions per block. The reason the debate has hit a fever pitch has to do with another proposal called Bitcoin Unlimited, which would do away with a one megabyte limit in favor of a flexible cap. This winter, it had been gaining support from an increasing number of computers on the network. Then, in mid-March, Bitcoin Core supporters perceived that the team behind Bitcoin Unlimited would soon be bringing online a significant amount of hashing power that would enable Bitcoin Unlimited to achieve what's called a contentious hard fork. Basically, they would be able, by brute force rather than community consensus, to create a second version of Bitcoin. It's not necessarily a bad thing if the majority of miners decide that they support a certain version of the Bitcoin software. But in this case, the conspiracy theory went that it would be a small number of people, and if they controlled the network, then Bitcoin would no longer be decentralized. As one of my sources said, it would be no different from a financial system that was controlled by, say, bankers or high-frequency traders in New York or a government. 
However, as you'll see from this episode, this is only one interpretation and not necessarily the truth. It took me a while to decide which guests to put on the episode. The debate has become so politicized, I didn't want to do a show where listeners would be prejudging the guest comments or where my podcast would just rehash the finger pointing that we've seen on Twitter and Reddit. But I believe I found a couple guests who will be able to have a thoughtful discussion about the debate. Jeff Garzik is the CEO and co-founder of Block, a blockchain enterprise company whose co-founder Matt Rozak was an earlier guest on the podcast. Charlie Lee is the director of engineering at Coinbase and also the creator of Litecoin. Welcome, Jeff and Charlie. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Laura. Jeff, let's start with you. Tell us your history with Bitcoin. How did you hear about it and what has your involvement been over the years? Well, uh, after uh, spending 10 or 15 years in the open source community with uh, one of the world's largest open source projects, Linux, it was uh, very uh, natural and interesting to uh, jump on this new cryptocurrency bandwagon in uh, July of 2010, what I call the great slash dotting of 2010. There was a story on a website uh, uh, amusingly labeled News for Nerds, which uh, described this uh, currency, which had uh, no central bank. There was uh, no company running it. It was not a product from a company. It was a uh, you know something totally new and totally different. A set of disorganized, decentralized computers all collaborating together to create a single currency with a supply that could not be manipulated by politicians, bankers users, etc. And as an engineer, I was naturally skeptical. I've thought many times, how would we create this uh, just absolutely wonderful, uh, decentralized, uh, not run by uh, one company or government uh, type of approach? And uh, I, I didn't believe it. I, I thought that uh, there had to be some trick. So I looked deep enough, and because it's open source, it's open to inspection by any engineer with the knowledge. It impressed me. It really did work. And that's how I got started. I got started by contributing more and more changes to the software, eventually becoming uh, what they call a Bitcoin core developer, one of the... Uh, uh, more noted uh, developers in that project for several years. So from 2010 until present, uh, I've been involved in the Bitcoin project, watched it grow, and uh, seen it through many uh, bumps, turns, hills, and valleys. And are you still a core developer? I'm not. I'm uh, building a company right now that uh, the uh, idea behind Block, which uh, you know we can cover uh, in depth at uh, some other time, was generally where do we, how do we mature an ecosystem that's still a sort of volunteer-driven, download-it-yourself uh, type experience? How do we take that to larger businesses that don't necessarily have? Uh, the engineers on staff with this knowledge, they don't necessarily have the ability to support it 24-7. And uh, so really, I, I took a break from core development to take Bitcoin to a wider audience. And Charlie, what about you? How did you hear about Bitcoin and how have you been involved? Sure. I first heard about Bitcoin in early 2011. It was from, an, I think, a Wired article on Silk Road. Uh, the drug marketplace that only accepted Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin was or is a uncensorable currency, and that really drew my interest um, because I saw it as kind of like digital gold. Um, and then in 
late 2011, I created Litecoin, which is a fork of Bitcoin, um, also popularly known as silver to Bitcoin's gold. Um, and in 2013, I decided to uh, quit Google, which where I was working at the time, and join Coinbase as the second engineer. And um, and then I helped Coinbase uh, build out GDAX, the exchange, and also start supporting Ethereum and Litecoin. Um, and I'm uh, currently the director of engineering at Coinbase. And um, I should also mention that your brother was the the last guest on Unchained, and um, he did talk about how you were the one who introduced him to Bitcoin. Okay, so let's dive right into you know the the main topic of today's discussion. Between these two choices that are being talked about a lot in Bitcoin, Segwit versus Bitcoin Unlimited. Can each of you describe for me which one of these you support and why, or or if there's something else you support? Sure. So I, I try to have much more of a, a deeply nuanced view than uh, a, a this or that. I think that uh, the the one of the biggest questions that has been facing this uh, community for many years is really how do we upgrade uh, Bitcoin consensus rules. And uh, the consensus rules, I, I like it to, or, or draw an analogy to the U.S. Constitution. The consensus rules in Bitcoin are the rules that every participant in the network must uh, adhere to. Otherwise, the network con- considers their transactions invalid. And so that is a, uh, a very uh, big inflection point in terms of governance. If you're upgrading to new rules, potentially uh, you are uh, introducing new features which change the currency supply. It's, uh, it potentially introduces rules that uh, change uh, how Bitcoins are spent. Um, there's uh, basically just like anytime you change the constitution, it's uh, literally uh, anything can happen, uh, both on the benefit side as well as on the the risk side. And just like in law, it's intentionally set up such that it's very very difficult, therefore, to uh, change the constitution, the foundation foundational law of the land in the United States. Similarly. You don't want to make it easy to change the foundational rules of Bitcoin. Otherwise, Bitcoin really wouldn't be Bitcoin. So it's uh, really been a story of, I think, how do we upgrade Bitcoin, number one, in a way that doesn't break Bitcoin. And uh, this is why a lot of the uh, sort of Bitcoin core segregated witness supporters have been focusing on the safety of the upgrade is how do you upgrade the network in a safe way? And uh, there's also, and this is where a lot of the community divide comes in, is there's the feeling that uh, if you travel, put this upgrade down a particular uh, path, i.e. segregated witness, then you're putting Bitcoin th- down a specific economic path, which uh, is potentially uh, not what... Uh, many in the ecosystem wanted. So I think that uh, that's really the, uh, the fundamental uh, issue here. It's not Bitcoin Unlimited versus SegWit. That's really just the question of the day and obviously why we're having this podcast. But it's really, is it uh, that uh, Bitcoin core path or a protest path? 
And I think that that's really a signaling for a protest path rather than for a Bitcoin Unlimited itself. And Jeff, when you say that, you know, where you think the community divide comes in is that one of these has a specific economic path with it. What What is that economic path? Yeah, basically, uh, you know, again, uh, describing blockchain, it's uh, you sometimes you have to use analogies. One of the analogies I use is that the uh, the block capacity that we're talking about, the way Bitcoin works, um, imagine you have a, a never-ending line of buckets that are filling up with water. And uh, the water that's going into each bucket, you have a certain amount of bucket capacity, say one liter every 10 minutes. And that's sort of where Bitcoin is, is we have one megabyte every 10 minutes on average. And the way the Bitcoin fee market works is that each bucket, the space in that bucket is uh, subject to competitive bidding. And so I attach a transaction fee to my transaction. It's a push style transaction as as all Bitcoin transactions are. And I'm bidding for space in that bucket. And if sufficient people bid above my bid, then my transaction comes later after those other transactions that bid higher. And uh, what we're talking about here, both with Segregated Witness as well as Bitcoin Unlimited and some of the other upgrades, is are we going to increase that bucket size? And what happens when you increase that bucket size? It's just like when you wave a magic wand and increase the housing supply in San Francisco is this has market impact. This has impact on how much fees are bid up, how much uh, transactions appear on the network. And as we're seeing today at uh, higher transaction fee prices, some businesses are priced out of Bitcoin completely. Uh, Shapeshift and BitPay have both sent notices to their customers indicating that transactions below a one to five US dollar mark are economically infeasible to process through their system. And as the transaction fees on the network, which uh, are around 50 cents to a dollar, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, that prices out many smaller economic transactions. And so that is really uh, getting to the heart of the debate is more about who is picking this uh, value, how much transaction capacity there is, how do you upgrade that value, what is the governance around that upgrade, because um, just like uh, it was uh, mentioned earlier in this podcast, um, that uh, fear that uh, miners become the the FOMC, the uh, Federal Reserve of Bitcoin, you have the same fear that uh, folks who are authoring the segregated witness are also picking and choosing those economic uh, attributes. And so that's the larger discussion, I think. And what you're seeing here is interesting because early on, Bitcoin was often praised for the fact that you could send money for a much lower fee than you would over, for instance, the Visa network. So, you know, people would often, or, or, and it wouldn't even be Visa, it didn't even have to be Visa, it could be, you know, any 
if you compare it to any of the traditional financial services like, um, you know, international wire transfers or um, remittance services or whatever. Um, so it's interesting how you're you're saying that some of these choices are actually resulting in fees that are <laughs> somewhat comparable. But just to get this on the record, so you don't really see these two choices as being the only two choices. So how, so what would you say is, you know, what you support? No, absolutely. I think that uh, segregated witness is a uh, great uh, sort of Lego block or foundational uh, set of features for Bitcoin. Um, something that I, I just tweeted out, I guess your listeners uh, will, it'll be several days old by the time they hear this, um, that uh, Litecoin is actually trialing segregated witness on the Litecoin network. And uh, one of the uh, my criticisms of uh, SegWit is not a good or bad, uh, but much more of a nuanced view of it needs more testing. And uh, the Litecoin network is uh, going to uh, provide that, it looks like. Um, Bitcoin Unlimited, on the other side of the scale, is uh, very new and uh, doesn't meet many of the criteria for a safe hard fork, uh, many of the uh, ancillary pieces of software, such as uh, the wallets that hold and manage digital assets, the front-end client applications, they are not, uh, in my opinion, uh, ready for a, uh, an abrupt Bitcoin Unlimited style hard fork. Uh, so uh, I, I definitely have a much more uh, nuanced view. I think that segregated witness as a uh, soft fork has poor governance properties, but segregated witness as a hard fork has much better governance properties. And But that, uh, that sort of distinction is probably a, a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> um, but uh, ultimately, uh, coming from one of my previous projects, uh, which was uh, – putting, uh, you know, specking out a satellite uh, that puts a blockchain in space. It was a, uh, ulti- you know, there are plenty of puns around that. It, you know, failed to launch, never, never got to space, etc. <laughs> but uh, one of the lessons learned was that there is a, a nine-step ladder that NASA uses to gauge technology readiness, uh, TRL, or technology readiness level. And since NASA deals with so many new, unproven technologies that uh, just appeared in the lab, and they have to, uh, many years down the line, do planning to decide, are we going to invest tens of millions of dollars in this in-the-lab feature uh, in the hopes that five years from now it will be in space, flight-ready, flight-proven? Each uh, feature in blockchain technology, Bitcoin, needs uh, that same evaluation, that technology readiness level. And so uh, what we have at Bitcoin today is we have a uh, capacity solution that uh, increases capacity a little bit, and it's a voluntary upgrade. That's SegWit. But it uh, really is, it appears unlikely to address those high fees to a notable extent, or we have a another solution that is uh, software is equally unprepared for uh, Bitcoin Unlimited, and so uh, a pragmatic, honest view of both of these technologies, I think, uh, leaves uh, some room for criticism on both sides. So I think that uh, there needs to be a base block size increase along with uh, segregated witness. So I think there needs to be both. But uh, the uh, problem uh, in some is that SegWit 
and uh, Lightning Network, uh, which is uh, predicated on SegWit as a payments replacement, is simply not ready. It's low on that TRL technology readiness level scale as a payments replacement. And so therefore, Bitcoin is sitting at a decision point where payments on-chain are being priced out by high transaction fees, and the proposed replacement is still years away. Okay, before we get into, because a lot of this stuff is, is really pretty detailed, but let's just uh, turn to Charlie. So the way that I originally phrased this question to Jeff was a choice of SegWit versus Bitcoin Unlimited, but in a way you could also phrase it as SegWit versus just bigger blocks in some form. Which do you support and why? I do I do support the Bitcoin Core side, uh, which is segregated witness, but uh, segregated witness is not actually uh, incompatible with BU or bigger blocks. I do think that we should do segregated witness now, today, because it's safer. And in a year or two, if we still need to do a block size increase, we can do a hard fork then to increase the block size. So that's my position. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the background, about why we're coming, we're reaching this um, impasse today. It's because the way I see it, Bitcoin is initially when people first got into Bitcoin like three, four years ago, three, four, five years ago, Bitcoin was like the perfect money, right? It was everything to everyone. It had high security, decentralization, low fees, fast payments, basically just worked perfectly uh, for both store value and payments. But unfortunately, as the block size, the block rewards decreases over the years, you kind of had to choose, pick and choose. Uh, you, you got... Bitcoin can either be good at store of value, um, uncensorable transactions, or it can be good at payments. It can't really be good at everything anymore. And I think this is a trade-off that eventually uh, we had to make. So for on-chain payments, and um, the reason why Bitcoin Core supporters are very conservative is because we don't want to lose the decentralization aspect of Bitcoin. And with that, we lose the uncensorability. So there are tons of payment options out there today. Bitcoin is not better than any of the other ones. The one thing that makes Bitcoin unique is the fact that it has uncensorable transactions. And in order for Bitcoin to scale on-chain today, it would have to risk this feature for it to compete with um, other payment methods. So I think the, the strategy, the plan for Bitcoin Core is to keep this special feature of uncensorability with Bitcoin and scale off-chain as much as possible via Lightning or other methods. And if we have to, and in a few years, we'll have more better idea about how much we can scale on-chain without hurting the security and decentralization of Bitcoin. And at that time, we're more able to make a decision to increase the box size. Okay, so just for listeners who aren't familiar with Lightning and, and some of these you know, so-called second layer payment channels and stuff like that. Can you just describe that in lay terms for someone who maybe is new to this concept? Yeah, sure. It's quite technical, but I think the general idea is that instead of putting your transaction on the blockchain and mine and confirmed by a miner, the transactions will be shared between the payer and the receiver, and it's not broadcasted. So the receiver at both sides have a transaction of A paying B. And if they need to, they can broadcast the transaction on the network. 
and A can pay more to B, and then they would replace the transaction with a transaction where they pay where A pays more, or the opposite. If B wants to pay A money, then they replace that transaction with a newer one where A pays B less. And Lightning Network also allows um, to have multiple parties. So A can pay B, but going through an intermediary. So A pays someone else, and that person pays B. Um, so it, get, it gets quite complicated, but the general idea is that it becomes kind of like an IOU that's off-chain, but eventually can be settled on-chain. So it won't use any of the, it won't require any uh, network fees until it settles. So in the meantime, you can move money around with very little or no fees paid to the Lightning nodes. And only when it settles on chain would you pay would you need to pay the on chain fees. Okay. One other thing that I wanted to ask you about was your support of segregated witness. Last year your employer, Coinbase, supported an effort that I guess is even still ongoing, although not very robust right now, which is called Bitcoin Classic, which uh, proposed bigger blocks. Did you at that time support Bitcoin Classic and bigger blocks? I supported it to a certain degree. I think if at that time, I mean, the community is ready to upgrade uh, to two megabyte blocks. It's just that it needed to be safe. So it needed like more time for, for the code to be deployed and tested and then for people to upgrade and make sure everyone is upgraded before the fork happens. Otherwise, you might have a split of the coin. So um, I think it was clear back then that it didn't get it didn't get the it didn't get it didn't have consensus. Like not everyone was on board. So that's why Bitcoin Classic or push for a two megabyte hard fork did not go through. So and Bitcoin's Bitcoin Core's answer to that is segregated witness, which is a soft fork, which is a safer upgrade which also gives us effectively two megabytes or close to that. And it's done in a much safer way. And I do support that today because uh, the code is ready. Uh, we just need miners to start signaling for it and for it to activate. So it can activate as quickly as uh, two to four weeks. And this is the safest path forward today. So then, and either you or Jeff could respond to this, but why is it that we've only seen support for segregated witness at less than 50%. It's kind of stalled around like 25, 30%, I think. Uh, why, why is that? So right now, segregated witness is, uh, is being activated with minor signaling. So uh, we're basically asking the miners to tell the rest of the network when they're ready to enforce segregated witness. And there's this whole controversy with BU, and some of the, uh, the some of the pools and miners uh, support BU and feel like segregated witness will undermine their position, so they don't they're not signaling for it. So unfortunately, Bitcoin mining is is not is pretty centralized today in terms of uh, a few big pools and most of the miners being in China. So being centralized, it makes it. It makes it such that a few big players can actually decide whether or not to uh, push through segregated witness or or fork for BU. Okay, and then the last thing actually that I wanted to ask you, Charlie, was about this trial of SegWit on Litecoin. How does that work? And once we finish the trial, how will that affect what happens with Bitcoin? Yeah. So. Um, 
we decided to also adopt uh, segregated witness for Litecoin and uh, hoping that uh, miners for Litecoin would uh, more easily push through segregated witness. And uh, just recently, F2 pool started, the largest uh, Litecoin mining pool started signaling for SegWit. So it's starting to look more and more likely. So once SegWit actually activates on Litecoin, then people can actually test out Lightning uh, transactions on the Litecoin network. Um, because there's, then you can transfer real value, so you can actually test, and then there may be people uh, who might want to um, steal from a Lightning network transaction, for example. So there will be real-world testing, and I think uh, after with enough real-world testing, people and miners and pools on Bitcoin might feel more comfortable activating SegWit and therefore Lightning on Bitcoin also, and that's that's what I'm thinking. Okay, great. I just want to pause things right here to bring in an important word from our sponsor, OnRamp. The best companies in the world obsess about branding. Killer branding will transcend your company and strategically and competitively position you in the market. Done well, a remarkable brand will affect buyers and their purchase decisions and give your organization a voice that sets you up for long-term success. OnRamp is a full-service creative agency that helps their clients maximize brand awareness, gain market momentum, and accelerate growth. Whether it's branding and identity for a new startup, redesigning an existing website to generate traffic and leads, or executing a custom design project or marketing strategy, OnRamp will get your organization strategically poised for the future. You can learn more and see examples of its work at thinkonramp.com. I'm speaking with Jeff Garzik of Block and Charlie Lee of Coinbase. So one of the things I wanted to ask you both about is these potential nuclear options that are on the table. In one of my recent stories about the potential hard fork, I found that the two quote-unquote sides, um, which so someone uh, on Twitter said that there there are no sides in Bitcoin, but I think you know we can effectively say that these two teams are uh, don't really have the same vision, uh, which are core and unlimited. And um, unlimited's nuclear option is that if it obtains the majority of hashing power on the network and splits the blockchain, then they could attack the minority chain to make sure it, do- it doesn't survive. And core's nuclear option is to uh, because you know core is created is made up of the developers is to alter the bitcoin software so that it won't run on current mining equipment and that would completely cut miners out of the system how have we gotten to this point where both sides are considering or even threatening the other side with these nuclear options well a lot of that really comes uh down to uh there's there's just such a low level of trust between the two sides you know, rewinding back to uh, 2016, there was a uh, meeting in Hong Kong where uh, the miners met some of the uh, the Bitcoin Core team, and there was an agreement of uh, there would be uh, segregated witness activation if there was also a base block size increase. And uh, you know, without going into the sort of the back and forth drama there. Um, at least on the miners, they 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 feel that their trust is uh, pretty low. They feel that uh, they made an agreement and that was broken by the other side, and so things just sort of deteriorated from there in the community. There are a lot of uh, companies, uh, myself included, that are uh, have been trying to build bridges between the two sides such that uh, they can come to the table and avoid these nuclear options that 
uh, are really to the detriment of uh, everyone in the market. I, I think no one really wants to see any of those um, happen. And also, it's it's really going to be a case of if that happens, uh, the miners potentially segment themselves away from the economic majority and so thereby uh, hurt their own income. And there's also the potential for, uh, on the other nuclear option, uh, segmenting yourself away from where the Bitcoin gets its most security, which is that hash power security against uh, transaction reversal and against transaction censorship. And so uh, a a lot of these, I think, uh, tend to be chess moves that the vast majority of the uh, market participants, the Bitcoin holders, they don't really want to see either option happen. And Charlie, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like nuclear weapons in the uh, real world, right? They're not really used. <laughs> um, and it's just to prevent war, right? So it's a threat of nuclear option that forces the other side to behave, kind of. So it's it's a bad idea for uh, BU to fork at 75% and start attacking the minority chain. And it's also a bad idea for, the, for Bitcoin to change proof of work to... Um, destroyed the value of all the uh, Bitcoin miners out there. So it's just two nuclear options that are just hoping to prevent the other side from making a stupid decision of doing something that would, destroy, that would be bad for both sides. So one solution that's come up both in this podcast and I've seen it multiple times on social media and I've also had multiple sources say something about this to me and this is also something I've wondered myself uh, and this is actually what Jeff referred to when he was talking about that Hong Kong agreement. Why is it that the core developers are against doing both SegWit as well as increasing the block size? This is, as I mentioned, just a suggestion I've seen so many places. People seem to think it's kind of a good common sense compromise. But why is that not on the table? Well, the doing a hard fork today will take at least six months. Some people think it needs a year or even two for a safe hard fork. So it's SegWit is available today, right? If you if the miners start signaling, we can have larger blocks in two to four weeks. So why compromise? Why spend the work to kind of come up with a SegWit plus two megabyte fork that would take at least six months to activate when we can activate SegWit today and then worry about increasing the block size in the future. And also I want to mention that Bitcoin Core is not a centralized group, right? It's a bunch of developers that all work on Bitcoin together, and they don't come to a meeting and make decisions. So like the few core developers that went to Hong Kong explicitly said that they're speaking for themselves, that they would try to convince the team to hard fork, um, but they can't be sure that um, the team will agree or that there is consensus among like everyone that a hard fork is necessary. So it's it's not easy. And coming out of the Hong Kong agreement, I think there was some misunderstanding where the, the miners felt that Bitcoin Core as a whole promised this. And because it didn't happen, they are they felt that they got that the agreement wasn't wasn't upheld. But that's not the case because it's it's two Bitcoin core developers speaking for themselves. And Jeff, how do you see it? Well, there, there's definitely a, uh, a difference of opinion on a few points. Uh, for example, the, the claim that uh, SegWit uh, will deliver capacity in two to four weeks is uh, something that 
SegWit supporters have been claiming on social media since 2016. So it's uh, something that uh, clearly is not meeting uh, optimistic expectations, number one. And uh, number two, uh, when you hear that claim, uh, the, the two to four weeks to capacity, uh, it's also misleading because it's a two-step upgrade. SegWit requires that people who create new transactions upgrade security-sensitive code, the code that adds digital signatures to each transaction. This means embedded hardware wallets, financial exchanges that uh, process millions in liquidity every day. And so that's a, a big uh, risk surface to upgrade. And that's part of the reason why uh, there's a lot of uh, reservation towards SegWit. So the, uh, the SegWit upgrade is a two-step of uh, one minor signal that capacity can be brought online. It's not brought online. It can be. And then that second step is that there's a voluntary opt-in upgrade that slowly over time increases capacity. And so uh, some of the problems, therefore, are we have today these uh, high transaction fees. Uh, some people are running realistic predictions of uh, $5 transaction fees by the end of the year, even if SegWit uh, activates. And so we, uh, we wind up with this point where we are still not solving the problems that users in the field are actually seeing today. Yet, uh, as was mentioned earlier in the podcast, they want to uh, wait until SegWit does or does not fulfill these uh, capacity predictions. And then as a uh, next step, six months, a year down the line, we'll decide, well, the SegWit experiment uh, di did not bring the desired capacity online. Now we have even more uh, uh, transaction fee to bear. Now let's look at plan B. And so that it's that lack of plan B and that lack of, apparent lack of time pressure that uh, a lot of people are fairly critical over. This has uh, been optimistic projection after optimistic projection, and yet uh, transaction fees are going up and capacity is not coming online. So there's, uh, that's, that's sort of the larger picture that uh, a lot of people are looking at right now is that there's a lot of cheerleading for an in-the-lab solution that probably is not going to deliver for another year or two in terms of bringing cheap payments online. So something that's interesting to me about this discussion is both of you are engineers, so I'm sure you are much more familiar with the Bitcoin software code than I or many of the listeners. <laughs> um, and yet it's interesting to see how two people who are kind of really steeped in that technical perspective have a really different view. So I think this actually really kind of encapsulates what is going on in the broader community where you have these pretty strong opinions about how technical decisions will affect the network. So even as we're seeing this play out just in the small microcosm of this little podcast and between you two, when you look at that and these differences, how likely do you think a contentious hard fork is? Earlier you were saying, oh, it's just the nuclear option to, you know, kind of try to get your way. But it really sounds like you guys or and the two sides have very different views. More uh, immediately, I tend to think it's pretty unlikely. I think that uh, it's more chess moves and signaling. And uh, the vast majority of people on all sides of 
this debate. They they want a Bitcoin that's stable, that works, that uh, doesn't lose all the properties uh, that we all uh, cherish today. And so I think uh, everybody in the room really wants the same thing at the end of the day. Uh, but if we uh, look at it very, very philosophically, is uh, ultimately any of these blockchains and Bitcoin is uh, not unique in this regard. Again, going back to that uh, analogy with the U.S. Constitution, eventually in one of these blockchains and Ethereum ETH Classic is an excellent example, you are going to have a philosophical agreement, uh, excuse me, disagreement. And if you have a philosophical uh, disagreement, you're going to have a uh, an unresolvable fork. You're going to have the blockchain equivalent of a stock split, where uh, previously you had one coin and now you have uh, two quantities of uh, two different coins. And this is chaotic. This is awful from a market perspective. It's awful from a uh, brand confusion perspective. Um, and so I, all parties are really uh, working hard to avoid a contentious hard fork. That's, that's why it's mentioned so much is because the outcome is uh, not desirable at all. But from a philosophical and policy standpoint, a lot of people do feel that uh, if not this year, if not next year, then eventually these chains will have a – uh, an unresolvable a philosophical split, and we'll, you will see two communities going two different ways. And Charlie, what do you think? Do you think a contentious hard fork is likely or not? Uh, in the near term, I don't think it's likely. I mean, I agree with Jeff. I think it's a lot of chess moves. I'm not sure if this... I, I'm optimistic that um, SegWit would uh, activate and Lightning would help solve this problem, or Lightning or other future technologies will help solve this, uh, help make Bitcoin a use, useful as a payment method as it is as a store of value. And we can please both sides of, the, of this camp. But if it can't, then there may be a split where people who care more about Bitcoin being a gold replacement on one side and Bitcoin as a uh, kind of a payment replacement on the other side. And that may be a good thing when that happens, but today I don't think that's gonna. Uh, I don't think that's good for anyone for Bitcoin to split into two coins like Ethereum did. So, since you're both saying that it is a distinct possibility, let's just run through this hypothetical. Let's say that there is a contentious hard fork, in which one chain obtains the majority of the computing power, and then maybe. Um, you know, attacks the other chain, or, or maybe not, maybe there's just two chains. Um, which chain do you think will be con considered the quote unquote true Bitcoin after that? That's uh, that's a what that's sort of the the ten billion dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> and it uh, is from a social context, uh, taking a step back, it's really just something fascinating to uh, ponder and watch. Because uh, you have, uh, for example, some of the uh, people who are feeling uh, more pain on the payment side, they're saying that uh, Bitcoin is the coin with the majority hash power that's uh, the most secure chain from a miner perspective. And uh, then you have uh, obviously a vastly different uh, philosophical position that says that it's a uh, more about 
following the the Bitcoin core developers, and it becomes a uh, centralized on this party versus centralized on this other party uh, type of divide. Neither of which is is productive or good for Bitcoin in the long term. Um, the user experience you would wind up with uh, uh, similar to Ethereum ETH Classic. Uh, you're holding Bitcoin one day, and then the next day you're holding uh, Bitcoin A and Bitcoin B in equal amounts. <laughs> and you, ha you and the rest of the market has the subjective task of figuring out which is the real Bitcoin. And I don't think there are, it are any easy answers, and that's why uh, people are really working so hard to avoid that sort of chaos. And Charlie... What do you think? Which one will be will be considered the true Bitcoin? Well, I think where Bitcoin really brings value is the uncensorability aspect of it. So if one side is sacrificing uh, securing decentralization for payments, I think that Bitcoin is not going to be worth much. Because yeah, if Bitcoin is going to be start competing with like Visa, then I might much rather use my Visa card than that Bitcoin versus whereas the other Bitcoin the one where um, for the core supports is the one where uh, we kind of optimize for security and decentralization above all else. And that is what I think brings Bitcoin real value, where I can pay anyone anywhere in the world without risk of being that transaction being blocked by a third party or the government. And I'm for that, I'm willing to pay like even a dollar or two for moving the, moving money. It's much faster and much cheaper than a, currently a wire transfer is. Well, so something that's interesting to me is I saw that on Twitter, Naval Ravikant, the CEO of AngelList, who is also a super smart thinker in this space, he said that he thought the chain that would be considered more valuable is the one that was thought to be more decentralized. And I think right now people have this conception that the one that like let's say that there were two chains one of which was kind of like run by core or would be the one that core supported and then the other perhaps like the bitcoin unlimited chain people have this seem to have this uh, perception that the bitcoin core chain would be the one that would be more decentralized but i found myself when i was reporting this story about the potential hard fork really questioning how i know which one is decentralized because you know, if we're going to follow kind of the current narrative, which is that, or, or at least the one that was popular a few weeks ago, where Bitcoin Unlimited represents this, you know, small group of people trying to take over the network. But then when I interviewed one of the people who's involved with Bitcoin Unlimited, his name is Jihan Wu, and he's um, uh, he owns some of the mining companies and, and also <laughs> one of the mining equipment companies. He, you know, really tried to emphasize to me that he's not forcing people to choose one side or the other, particularly, you know, not his side. And, you know, if I think over the years about all the different developers who've left Bitcoin Core because they supported big blocks and found that they they were not able to stay on the team and, and have that view, then I started wondering, well, maybe, you know, there is kind of like a small group of people who believe in small blocks who are now in control of the software. And then I, I really just went through this whole thing where, you know, I just felt like, well, it's kind of impossible to tell which side is quote unquote decentralized. 
I, I don't know what you guys think of that. Is first of all, do you agree with Naval that the more dis- the one that's perceived to be more decentralized would win? And if so, how will people determine which one really is more decentralized? Yeah, there are, there are absolutely many elements uh, to decentralization, and uh, either side of the argument has some centralization aspects to it. And so there's uh, a lot of uh, people who believe, and, and I'm one of those, that uh, there's a lot of developer centralization as well. Uh, part of the what we've seen of the debate over uh, the past several years at the, is there's been a lot of compromise and uh, multiple efforts outside of Bitcoin Core, but at the same time that uh, that Bitcoin Core has not really compromised at all. And so there's been uh, that aspect of it. Uh, the higher transaction fees uh, without having a replacement like Lightning actually deployed ready in the field, this gets a bit back to the technology readiness, is uh, this pushes people onto centralized systems. And so if you're priced off the Bitcoin network, then you're uh, going to be using a much more centralized platform to uh, interact with the Bitcoin network at all. And so that, uh, that leads to a sort of a negative adoption factor that uh, a lot of people are concerned with, where it's a gap between uh, killing the current payment experience, which is where the current transaction fee levels are pushing, and that gap between when the next solution is uh, going to be ostensibly in optimistic projections available. And so that that introduces a lot of uh, centralization on the platform side, as well. So it's a miner versus dev decentralization argument on uh, both sides of the debate. And just to elaborate on what you were talking about here, where you mentioned it sort of pushes people onto centralized platforms, you mean that these second layer solutions that we talked about earlier, that those are platforms that will be run by certain companies and people will interact on those and then those will uh, tap into the Bitcoin network. Is that what you? Yeah, yeah, mean? that's right. Is uh, you know, factually speaking, Lightning is not in user hands today. This uh, wonderful uh, payment network that is uh, supposedly the hope and savior of Bitcoin payments, it uh, it doesn't exist from a user perspective. It's not deployed in the field. And so, if you're looking to do micropayments or small economic payments with Bitcoin. Uh, your choices are very, very limited. It's basically, uh, you can go to a uh, Coinbase, you can go to a 21.co or a a blockchain.info, a very limited number of sites. And if you transact between two users on that site, you can avoid the high transaction fees, the dollar per transaction that you're seeing on the network today. And so economically, these high transaction fees push you off the Bitcoin network and onto one of these websites that mitigates that high cost. And so that's a centralization factor that uh, we're seeing today. And Charlie, I wanted to direct that question to you as well, the one about how Naval sees this as something where decentralization will be the determining factor. And, you know, I asked, first of all, do you agree? And second, how will people decide which is more decentralized? Well, I don't fully agree that, like, you can really measure decentralization and that determines who wins. In the end, if there's a split, it's more about, like, who the community or the exchanges or the wallet wallets 
or the uh, merchant processors what they call Bitcoin is, and that's Bitcoin, right? So if all the if all the exchanges and wallets all all follow BU's chain and call that Bitcoin, then that would be Bitcoin. So or vice versa, if they follow if they keep following the core chain and keep calling that Bitcoin, and that's Bitcoin, right? So it's basically like Bitcoin is decentralized. So people, whatever they want to consider to be Bitcoin is Bitcoin. And that's what's going to happen. Right. But do you feel like there's any particular thing that will make people say to themselves, oh, that's the real Bitcoin? I think if there is a contentious fork, it's going to take a while before we we know which one is the real one. And I think what would determine that is just market value. So if both coins are traded on an exchange, people would uh, buy the one they feel like is the real Bitcoin, and that would determine what the real Bitcoin is. So because you're both technical people, I also wanted to ask you about other open source efforts. How do those tend to decide upon controversial questions like this? And what lessons could the Bitcoin community learn from them? And what processes do you think maybe the Bitcoin developers should adopt to avoid these kinds of stalemates? The other open source projects don't have a similar problem with Bitcoin where there's a huge network effect, right? So if there's a split, you have to, it's without the network effect, you're not, it's not the same. So with other open source projects, if there's a contentious decision, uh, people can just split off, fork off to a different project and keep and release two different products and there's no issue. But with Bitcoin, I think it's more, it's much more an issue where there's a lot of value in it and a split coin is bad for both sides. So everyone wants to stay together, but there's also this tension where they don't agree on a certain thing. So I think we're seeing something that's happening for the first time, and that's when people don't know how to how to kind of uh, wrap their minds around it. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, very different from, uh, for example, uh, my uh, Linux experience, where, like Charlie said, if uh, someone disagrees with uh, the quote-unquote benevolent dictator, the project leader, Linus Torvalds, you just uh, fork off your own software, and uh, you're your own new project leader, and the market will decide uh, which is the better piece of software. And adding the economic component in here, Bitcoin, is what uh, makes that decision point so different, is uh, you're really uh, changing not just software, but the, the, the economy itself. And so, number one, that uh, has to be done with great caution, great care. No one wants to break the 10 billion plus uh, machine that is Bitcoin. And at the same time, it's getting into uh, a dangerous, untried new ground where developers are asked to make economic decisions. Developers potentially are picking winners and losers in the market with uh, the intended and unintended consequences of those decisions. And so that's number one, new ground. And number two, uh, quite frankly, a position that developers really don't want to be in. And so trying to find that uh, governance uh, solution is a, uh, an ongoing uh, problem to be solved. And have either of you seen any proposals that would help deal with this problem? I think it's uh, uh, getting into how do we make laws in Bitcoin, which is something that people don't want to do. So it's, it's almost a paradoxical question. How do you govern the ungovernable? How do you uh, 
create a, how do you make a decision in a decentralized leaderless environment? And so that's really uh, boiling it down, the problem that we're all facing right now. And uh, if anyone had a solution that was workable and obvious and uh, successful, I think we, uh, it would already be on the table. Well, I happened to be talking to Emin Gunsir the other day, uh, who is a Cornell professor who is also a, <laughs> a cryptocurrency expert. And he said something about, uh, you know, kind of running different tests to see how different decisions would affect the network and, and the economic system. Is that something that people have considered? Absolutely. It's uh, a matter of simulation, whether you're simulating a technical upgrade or whether you're simulating some of the economics. But simulations are, uh, by their nature, imperfect. They absolutely help. But uh, it's a economy or market-driven uh, uh, instrument. And so ultimately, how do you simulate the real world? How do you simulate market dynamics, price dynamics, application A running on Bitcoin uh, has a demand and set of actors different from application B. And so that's ultimately uh, the difficulty in simulating or analyzing this. How do you simulate the real world? Okay, so right now, and I'm glad that we brought up the economic question, uh, right now when people don't know what's going to happen to Bitcoin, do either of you have any particular recommendation for what people should do with the Bitcoin that they own? Should they sell it? Should they hold on to it? What are you guys planning to do? I think they should uh, hold on to it in their own like wallet um, so that they have control and just forget about this whole issue and come back in like a year or two. Things will be settled. Or at least we'll, it'll be in a better shape than it is today. And just, yeah, don't worry about it. And the price will be probably be higher. Jeff, what do you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with Charlie there, is that uh, this will get sorted out. I'm very bullish about Bitcoin in general. I think it's a, an amazing invention. And uh, you have a ton of smart people motivated to make it work, uh, make it uh, continue working. So uh, that's really the non-technical advice is uh, one of the great strengths of Bitcoin is that uh, it, you control your own money. It's not an IOU in a bank. It's something that you can hold control over in its entirety. And so that uh, echoing Charlie is the, uh, definitely the advice I would give as well is hold your keys, uh, have a high security uh, environment set up. And uh, it will uh, sort itself out uh, in time. Great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show. Where can people learn more about your work and get in touch with you? Jeff? Block.com. And uh, we have the, uh, we're the only people in the industry with 24-7 enterprise blockchain support for uh, Bitcoin as well as other chains. And just to clarify, that's BLOQ.com. That's right. And Charlie, what about you? Coinbase.com and also Litecoin.org. Thanks for joining us today. If you're interested in learning more about Jeff and Charlie, check out the show notes, which are available on my Forbes page, forbes.com slash sites slash Laura Shin. Thanks so much for tuning in to Unchained, which comes out every other Tuesday. Please check out that survey that I mentioned earlier, surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained. And also don't forget to share the podcast with friends and on social media and to review, rate, and subscribe to it in iTunes or your preferred platform. Thanks again for listening. Thanks.